Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Female friendship tends to take a backseat in our narratives, so that when they are given the space to exist, they exist almost solely to discuss a man. Virginia Woolf once commented that all the great women of fiction were not only seen by the other sex, but seen only in relation to the other sex. When women are allowed to interact with each other beyond their thoughts on the other sex, they often end up in fraught relationships. Instead of supporting one another, they tear each other down. Slowly, but surely, this status quo is being upturned. We are getting more stories with complex, nuanced female friendships and positive representations of sisterhood. This is something we at Breaking the Glass Slipper are very excited to see. Alex Harrow explores female friendship and sisterhood in The Once and Future Witches, as well as her new novella, A Spindle Splintered. So who better to join us to tackle this subject? So hello, Alex. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Do please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I'm Alex. I wrote The 10,000 Doors of January and The Once and Future Witches. And then I was like, I need shorter titles. So I did A Spindle Splinter, this novella, but it's almost unpronounceable with the alliteration. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> uh, and I just moved to Virginia from Kentucky, where I was born and raised. Um, and I write full time while my husband does the actual hard work of raising the kids. I, I did have to say, I, I did struggle a bit with a spindle splintered, but yeah. I, I got it first time, so I'm feeling quite proud of that. <laughs> no, that's great. I, okay. I really I really like the um, the writing full time while your husband raises the kids. I feel like your priorities are just bang on. <laughs> so thinking about the books, when female friendships are depicted in fiction, they're often represented as fractious and catty. Why is this such a harmful representation? Uh, why are they always in this particular way? And how do such representations and tropes make you respond as a reader? Yeah, so the first thing I thought about this question is, is that phrase harmful representation, which I think is both important and can be a little bit loaded. Because one of the things I'm kind of encountering is that we're getting into this weird moment where we feel like if something is harmful, maybe fiction should steer away from it. But I, I think there's plenty of room for representing things that are harmful but also very true. You know, like, like there are female friendships and female relationships that are fraught, difficult, tangled, competitive, all those negative things. And there should also be room to write about those, I think. However, you're totally right that like, it's a it's just an exhausting trope that like two female characters can't seem to interact in most mainstream media without like, being at each other's throats. Or alternately, I find they can't have a friendship unless it is perfect. So it's almost it's, women get stuck on either end they're either perfect friendships where they've never done anything to hurt each other or they're catty and cruel and i think the the cattiness and the cruelty often comes out um because of the presence of a man like they're they're competitive specifically for a man's attention and so one of the things that i think is fun about like the way fiction is starting to change is that there's just more queer voices and queer female friendships can still be complex in all these different ways, but they aren't necessarily competing for men's attention in the same way. I know what you mean about there being a lot of 
sort of traction within this idea of fractious and, and catty. And I think there is some fantastic stuff to be explored out there, like you said. I mean, Megan's not here and she would dive in if she was um, but my husband is a huge fan of Mean Girls and personally I can't watch that film <laughs> because it's just too close to the bone for me and I'm like yeah I've had those conversations but for a lot of people they really love that and they take a lot away from that um, and I think you know it is it can be quite useful and I can see why it would be would be good but I must admit relating to the section where it says how do you respond as a reader if it's not done well, I do just kind of roll my eyes and go, oh, God, not again. Because <laughs> it seems to be the common trope and almost like the default. And either you have to switch that default or you have to go, you know what, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it at a slightly different angle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 very tiresome to see girls acting in fiction in ways that they're not acting as much in real life anymore. You know, like in some ways, Mean Girls is feels like a historical product to me because I believe the high school culture has changed substantially since that movie was made, you know, like, and, and everyone is now aware of even the phrase and concept of a mean girl and like the idea of sisterhood and empowerment and like not throwing each other under the bus for a stupid boy is more widespread, you know? <laughs> I know this might sound really silly and maybe it already exists and I'm just not looking in the right places but I would kind of like to see Mean Girls but in a fantasy format on a quest. This could be because I've just been listening to Radio Falls Elven Quest where they have a load of guys and one girl played by Sophie Winkleman going on this very silly quest and it, it is a huge comedy and it's really good and there's a lot of sort of you know banter in there and the, the characters are really well drawn <laughs> but I just kind of I kind of listen to it and go you know this would be so interesting if it was a load of women on a quest with all these different roles and they're all being catty and fractious with each other but I can't really think of anywhere in fantasy that you get that because it's usually you know sort of questers and the big things where it would be funny if they reduced it down it tends to be guys they explore it with but that just could be me and that's, I'd be happy to be proven wrong. That's totally true and it's not common and I love it because once you let women like round out the cast, then you don't have to worry so much about this. Like, Oh, is this character harmful representation? Am I doing this particular relationship justice? Because you get to let women just fill all roles. Like there can be a mean catty one. There can be a brave, stupid one. And you're not saying that all women are stupid. You know what I mean? Like it gives you so much more range. And the, the series right now that has my entire heart and soul, because it is you know, women are the majority of the cast and they're wonderful is uh, Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth. Um, I just think they're perfect. And I think the relationships in them are often bad, have horrible vibes, are complicated. Everyone is ambitious. Everyone has all these weird motivations, but they're ultimately so, I mean, the women are allowed to be fully people in this fantasy world. And I just love it. I wanted to ask about the relationship between Charm and Zim in your spindle splintered. I'm gonna have to. I might just call it the novella from now on, just in case I get it horribly wrong. Um, I mean, that's not catty at all, but it was a really interesting relationship because obviously, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Zen has a terminal condition, and Charm is kind of 
like, you know, just get on with it kind of stuff and stop being so mopey and whatever. So that was a really interesting kind of dynamic where she's both supportive and sort of, you know, catty and pushy all at the same time. So how did you come about with that? Because, I mean, it works really well and I don't find that I'm alienated from Charm despite her being kind of, you know, a bit pushy. But that's, you know, quite an interesting take. What, where did you come up with it and what made you think that this would be a good dynamic for two people to have? Um, I mean, I was thinking a lot about the idea of someone with a terminal illness um, and what kinds of friendships they would make. And I found myself kind of, well, mostly reading things written by people with serious illnesses um, about how dissatisfying they found a lot of their representation in fiction uh, because they were like the wise, sad one who like teaches everyone around them an important lesson about valuing life or something. And, th- and they found that very alienating. Um, and so to try to give them a relationship that felt real and that charm was invested in for reasons of her own that are not like um, altruistic. She's not doing some sort of noble thing by being Zen's best friend. Um, and, and I thinking about charm's character, it would make sense to me that she's the kind of person who like, wants to rescue others and is a little bit pushy and a little bit entitled and kind of loves being the hero because that's the sort of like both good and bad but true thing that like motivates people to enter into sorts certain types of relationships and like not to spoil anything but hopefully it's communicated in the novella that there's that charm has an arc too of realizing what she can and cannot control about zen's choices in life yeah, I mean, when I turned on my Kindle to read it, it said like an hour and a half to read the book. And I was like, really? What, what, okay, is this just going to be like a, you know, a quick a quick trip to the, the fairy tale? And you cut it all in and you expanded it and you drew in all these extra threads. And like you say, Charm, despite being an hour and a half read, had her whole a whole extra subplot and, you know, her own romance. And all. I was just like, wow, that's a lot to pack in for <laughs> such a short novella. It's amazing. <laughs> So when we're talking more about, um, you know, the the fractious, the catty relationships that women have, the, the ones that we see where women are more inclined to tear each other down than to support each other, what are the common assumptions that society makes about women in general in order to fit those particularly negative dynamics? I mean, it's all the basic ones that are just sort of like misogyny 101, right? Um that women are fundamentally jealous, that their main motivation is generally male attention and, and praise. Uh, often in these narratives, I find that the assumptions are that they are straight, cis, and white. <laughs> uh, they tend to come along with a lot of things. However, that's often like the what we'll call like the villain character in whatever the narrative is. I think there's also a, a set of tropes for the girl who is the good girl and that good girl is, you know, virginal, generally pretty, also straight, white, and cis, um, angelic, has an innocence to her. And I find both of these just very boring, very boring tropes and ways to think about female characters and just unrealistic. Like no one I know in a fairly broad (laughs) history of friendships with women adheres to either of those sets of things. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's exactly what we say every single time on this podcast about representations of women. It's the same stuff coming up again and again. And I think it's interesting also that you drew the 
you just talked about the difference between it's not just um, you know the the so called villain characters. It's also the, the the women who are presented to us as heroic or or heroines, you know, and, and what sort of characteristics they have. And very often, it's also just as restrictive. It really is, and that's one of the things that I found so I'm I'm finding a little bit frustrating about sort of publishing and interacting with a readership for the first time is that when you are writing mostly girl characters, which I tend to do, uh, the audience mm, acceptance of girls who do not great things or make mistakes or aren't perfect is harsh. Like there, there's a some sort of secret reviewer metric, it seems like, that is much more willing to punish female characters, particularly if they're presented as the heroine, who fuck up. Like, it, they just hate it, you know? Like, I've already seen some early reader reviews, and obviously everybody's entitled to their opinions and they should publish them wherever they want. Um, but some early reader reactions that are sort of like, Zinnia's just so whiny all the time, and she's not always in it to help others. She's mostly trying to help herself. And I just feel a little bit like, yeah, people do that. Sometimes girls do that. I don't know what to tell you. I'm quite surprised at, at that review. And I can I see it? I suppose she is but at the same time you give her motivation as to why she would be that way it's not like she's just a random girl at school who you know is off to university and has a big life ahead of her and everything she's she's literally got a small amount of time left to live and you make a big thing about how she's previously been you know living for other people and now she wants to live for herself so I'm quite surprised at those reviews because that certainly didn't come across for me at all but like you say you know everyone's opinion is is very subjective and, and, and whatever I thought that I thought that's um yeah that's an interesting take on it I suppose yeah, I just think it's it has to do a little bit with like the expectations we have for female characters. And, and in particular, I think we have a lot of ideas about how about ambitious women or women who want more than they have. And I think we have this kind of a shared cultural tendency to want women to play the sacrificial role a little bit more um, or the humble role and not to be sort of the cutthroat, ambitious hero who, who wants a better life. Yeah. They're really not going to like the book I'm writing now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I'm glad you mentioned it because I think you're completely right. And I think that it's another example of society's appalling double standards. Um, well, just gender based double standards about everything, really. Um, and I think you're right. I think women are given, um, you know, are judged a lot more harshly um, and by different parameters when actually we're talking about the same thing. You know, the thing that always gets me is, you know, um, a woman is described as hysterical when a man has is exhibiting righteous anger, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's the same situation. And yet they are completely different. Um I'm not sure where I was going with that. I was just being angry, yeah, righteously no, I, angry. I'll add some and just say that I think those standards are much more heightened for like women of color and trans women. Like for whatever reason, I think about this all the time because it made me so mad. It was a review of the movie Thor Ragnarok, which is a flawless film and I love. And the review largely liked it, but they were like, I just don't know about Valkyrie's drinking. She's a drunk in that. And aren't we beyond the point where we should be representing largely to children who are watching superhero movies that being drunk is okay. And I just felt irate because Thor as a character is drinking beer like by the gallon in every film up until that point. But suddenly seeing a woman of color do it, you're like, well, I don't know if that's good for the children. And it just, it drove me insane. 
that is quite a, a narrow viewpoint, I have to say, isn't it? That's, um, yeah, a little hypocritical. It's really interesting, this idea of, of catty friendships and ambitious woman, women and all this kind of thing. But at the moment, we're kind of focusing on friendship. And I wanted to kind of take a step sideways to sisterhood. And is it all right to be more catty to your sister? I mean, we've been watching Teen Titans this evening and, you know, we've got Starfire and Blackfire and they're just naturally at each other's throats. Um, and you do tend to find that a lot with sisters. And I have to admit, I'm an only child, so I don't really you know, can't really feel like I can talk about whether this is the reality or not. But how do you find representations of sisterhood against sort of representations of two women being friends? Um, interestingly, I find them uh, sometimes sim- falling into similar tropes as friendships. So either the sisterhood is perfect and these two sisters will do anything for each other, or the sisterhood is broken and flawed and their worst enemies and, you know, Amy is burning the book or whatever. Um, and I, again, I find that a little bit limiting. I have two younger brothers. I don't actually have any sisters. Um, but we have a sort of a wonderful and fractious and complicated and just a, a relationship with an incredibly long history, you know, which has messiness to it. Um, and definitely I was thinking about that a lot when I wrote The Once and Future Witches, which is very much about like three siblings who kind of had a big breaking point in their youth, finding each other again as adults, which like not coincidentally is what me and my younger brothers were doing at the time. Um, so I like, I try not to get too wrapped up in the specificity of sisterhood as opposed to siblinghood, you know, just like having family that is the closest possible person to you and your experiences. I kind of feel that Lucy should jump in here, not only as someone who's written a book called Sister Song, but as someone who actually has a sister. <laughs> I do. I do have a sister. <laughs> um, yeah. I was going to say, do you find that the relationships that you read in books about sisterhood matches what you have with your sister? Can you go, oh, yeah, I can totally relate with that. Or like, oh, that's totally not how me and my sister are. I do think Alex is right to say that there is, again, um, there's not much of a grey area with sisterly relationships I do think that it is very often at one end of the spectrum or the other um and of course nobody is like that um I think my sister and I are probably quite unusual in the fact that when we get together we're very stupid and we regress and um and I think that there's a joy in that because Alex just said no one is as close to you as a sibling no one has quite as close a life experience um and has that you know has gone through this the same trials as you and I feel like you know, that is possibly something we don't see quite as much of when we have depictions of sisterhood, um, that it's very often sibling rivalry um, more than than sibling support that we, we really see. Do you guys think then that maybe it's this kind of fiction is not necessarily about reflecting reality, it's about being a good story? Because... One of the things that I'm always telling my clients when I'm acting in editor mode is that tension drives a story forward and conflict and, you know, two characters sort of bouncing off each other. If two characters are too similar and supportive and they're just like, no, 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 I totally support everything you do, then there's not really a story there. Or there is, but it's a, it's not necessarily a really, you know, edge of your seat kind of story, which is what a lot of writers are going for. And I wonder, do you think that maybe that, story and the conventions of a story kind of drive this and that there's no real room for a proper sisterly bond or friendship bond 
at the beginning because you need them to the fun is seeing them work out the differences in part i feel like writers just learn from what we read right so the conventions of storytelling are things that we're learning from what we read and we tend to repeat a lot of those things for good or ill without really examining and taking them apart um and I think you're totally right that at least Western modes of t- storytelling are really invested in character conflict um, and agency, and that the best ways to like explore somebody's character is to have them in opposition to someone else. And I, I believe that there's probably other and better ways and more interesting ways to explore character, but like it's so easy to find yourself falling into these tired tropes because they do work, like they function at a story moving level, uh, and writing is hard. I'm sure you guys are aware writing is hard. Totally. Sometimes just going, you know what, I'm just going to stick a sister in there or a brother or something like that. But when I find myself doing that, I do try gender swapping it or going, well, maybe, you know, having a different relationship and maybe having mother daughter or, you know, father daughter or something like that. There's a book I want to read that's, uh, is it Six Crimson Cranes? That's the retelling of um, the Six Swan story. Mm -hmm, I think so. But with an Asian setting. I'd love to read that because I love that that um, fairy tale. And I think that's a perfect one for if we're talking about siblings and um, that kind of relationship. Um, that is a very powerful story. So, yeah, I'm totally – I read uh, Juliet Marillier's Daughter of the Forest years ago, um, which is m- a much more kind of traditional retelling. I love that book so much. That's I, And that fairy tale in general, it's wonderful. And we are seeing so many good retellings at the moment. Oh, my goodness. I think we could just, yeah, do like a whole episode on retellings and their popularity, which I possibly think we've done already, right, Charlotte? (laughs) I think fairy tales is one of the things we keep bringing in so often. We've never actually done a specific um, episode (gasps) on it. So it's along with like Tolkien and Pratchett, as in the really big ones that we keep bringing in all the time, like Buffy, we need to do a specific episode on them. But at the moment, they just end up being incorporated into everything else and we kind of deal with uh, with books. And there have been so many brilliant books out this year and so many fantastic authors that um, we've been able to get on the podcast. We haven't had time for all the, you know, the older stuff as well, which is why it's so great to have Alex on and be able to sort of think about how fairy tales sort of interact with the, the modern world. One of our, our questions was um, about stories being driven by tension and whether it was possible for women to be supportive of each other rather than at each other's throats. But I think we kind of digressed somewhat and, and answered that. But the second part of that question was, have you got any favourite examples of where women are actually given the space to be more than competitive and antagonistic towards one another? I know that you mentioned uh, Gideon earlier, but you know, do you want to expand on that example or give us some other ones that you might be able to recommend to us? Yeah, I mean, I, there's a, a ton, actually. And it's one of those sort of things that I think is becoming more common, but has also always existed. And, and one of my favorite writers, um, actually, from when I was like, I want to say in middle school is Nicola Griffith. Um, and her now fairly old book called Ammonite um, is sort of this classic sci-fi idea of like, what if there were a planet without men? But it's done so intelligently and with such um, insight and empathy. And it's it it totally like warped my brain when I was a kid because it was the answer to that question, what if there is a world without men, is essentially it would just be a world. Like women are the only characters, but that's more or less all that changes. Uh, you know, there's militancy still, there's war, there's religion, there's every structure that you find in humanity exists in this world that she imagines, and she does it beautifully and with complexity. And there's women who are lovers and women who are antagonists. And I just, I found it 
so enlightening when I was a kid. We've talked a lot so far about obviously one-on-one relationships with sisters and, and friends and everything like that. But when it comes to having larger groups of friends or multiple sisters, for example, um, do you find that the dynamics are a little bit more changed? Because obviously you can't have all the sisters being catty to each other. Well, I suppose you could, but it'd be a very hectic novel. You know, you'd think that there'd be a bit more of a, a balance. And I certainly know that in horror, if you've got groups of friends who were were women they do sometimes take on different roles some you get the traditionally catty ones um but you can also get you know supportive ones that look out for each other and then have the terrible death at the end which is really heartrending because they've been so nice to each other compared to the really catty blonde woman who you didn't really like anyway (laughs) um but i mean what do you what do you find alex in the stuff that you've read and and written yeah i think larger casts in writing to me, and I know some people this just comes naturally to, but we don't talk about them. The larger the cast is, the harder it is to me to feel like, um, like personally empathetic and like in their head. It's just, it's a writing challenge that I find huge. So once in future, which is, was a nightmare to write for me. (laughs) Um, so it's more difficult. And I think the reason it's more difficult is because you have to present them how they are as a group because like the group has a particular energy. And then you also have to remember that they're individuals who have their own ambitions, desires, arcs, and all these things and how you negotiate the group dynamic versus the individual character arcs is so complicated and has such a politics to it, you know, particularly when you're getting more like sketches of characters, I think, which happens in large cast books, you have to be very mindful of like, are you presenting the pretty blonde one as also stupid? Are you presenting the only woman of color in your cast as having particular motivations and experiences that are stereotypical? You know, you have to be extremely mindful of the politics and the personhood of each person in the group. And it's a nightmare. It's so hard. We could talk a little bit about common trajectories that we see repeated quite often in depictions of female friendship. For example, rivals to friends, breakdown of friendship, reconciliation. I think similar sorts of um, patterns that we actually see with in more in romance and in, in more romantic relationships like the enemies to lovers, you know, best friends to lovers, this kind of stuff. And I feel like these patterns of behaviour are also mapped onto friendships and relationships that are not sexual, that are purely platonic, that are between, um, and, and, you know, not just between women, between many, many people, many groups of people. So I'm just interested to know whether you feel like these are recurring patterns, that this is something that humans tend to act out again and again, despite whatever that relationship is. It could you know, whether it's friendship, whether it's romance, whether it's simply a dynamic between a parent and a child. So I love, I immediately was thinking about romance novels as soon as I saw this question, um, because of course those tropes that you're listing, rivals to friends, breakdown and reconciliation, all those things appear in romance novels. And I think that's because the thing that I have come to love about romance novels is that they know that a relationship itself has an arc. Like it's not just about an individual's experience and a character's arc. It's about the arc of their togetherness. And and I really love the idea that um, essentially we should elevate uh, non-sexual and non-romantic friendships, those relationships to sort of the level of significance of a romantic arc in a book. Like 
like that they do have like the moment when they meet, what they their first impressions of each other, the first time they're sort of forced into proximity and how they react and, and to kind of give friendship and maybe especially female friendship that weight and attention seems like a really wonderful trend and I love it. It's interesting that you say how much you like romance and yet you picked a fairy tale which is obviously all around romance and there is romance in it but it's not the main protagonist romance. So having said how much you like romance, what made you want to take a step to the side for this and kind of have the main protagonist as not being the romantic lead or or whatever? Oh, I guess because it just seemed important to me. Like in thinking about Sleeping Beauty, the reason I picked it is because it's, you know, it's 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 like a pretty rough one. If you were looking for even even the slightest feminist lens, that's a rough one. Um, and so thinking about that story and like what parts of it specifically needed to be subverted, I really wasn't sure I wanted this to be the kind of thing where Sleeping Beauty ends up happily ever after, married, settled, uh, in a romantic relationship of any kind. Like it, it also seems as much as I love romance novels and they have been getting me through this pandemic. Um, it also seems very important to me to have female characters whose resolution and finding of themselves and whatever you want to call it is not necessarily built around love. Um, even queer love. Uh, I, I like the idea that what she wins for herself in the end is essentially independence I really, really love the the take that you had on it, like I said, and I couldn't believe that you packed in so much stuff in, in such a short amount of time. And I think it's really refreshing to to see Sleeping Beauty's story told from a, a slightly different way. And I liked uh, Zinn's sort of take on it as well, you know, this idea that she's got a curse as much as, as the um, Sleeping Beauty character, Primrose. And yeah, it was it was just so refreshing to kind of go, this is a story about love, but also not about love. I thought that was that was quite good. But like I say, I was just so surprised when you said how much you love romance novels and then you <laughs> took a relatively romantic one. But like you say, there's so much problems with consent with Sleeping Beauty. And I appreciate that a lot of fairy tales were gathered and retold by the Grimm's brothers and other men. So there's, you know, they weren't so bothered about that. But it is a story that definitely needs re-examining in, you know, light of current current feelings and social mores and things. I mean, it's funny. It's one of those stories that the further back in versions you go, the worse it gets. <laughs> like, you know, it turns out the version we've all seen in, in like the Disney version, we're all like, ooh, I don't know if you should just kiss someone you've never really spoken to before. But, you know, the Grimm's version they collected and Perot's version is way, way worse. Um, and I will say that I got to, they let me write a sequel novella to this one, which is... Um, basically the same concept but with Snow White so I got to do a lot of research about Snow White and and that one was actually a little bit less harrowing in terms of like looking at older versions and how the relationships worked in that there's a I think it's a Flemish version I'm not totally sure of Snow White where it's not dwarves it's it's like 20 bandits or something that she lives with in the caves while she's hiding from her wicked stepmother. And the end of the story is the prince coming and proposing. And she's like, nah, I'm good. And she stays with the bandits. And I was like, this is great. I love her. That does sound like a a far more interesting ending to it. I remember reading one academic essay on Snow White and it's saying that they tend to leave out the fact that she, there's this kind of, 
sub-relationship between her and her stepmother and the fact that the stepmother is held up as being all feminine and, you know, caught by the trappings of beauty and all the things she offers Snow White before she offers her the apple. There's like a, a comb, isn't there, and um, something else. Um, and all these trappings of beauty and eventually Snow White gets caught up just as her, her stepmother did. And it's kind of like, well, what happened to the stepmother beforehand? How did she get trapped in all of this? I just thought that was a, an interesting take on it that I hadn't necessarily thought about before. No, isn't it amazing how, how femininity in that story is like such a weaponized and villainous thing. Like Snow White is supposed to be beautiful, essentially like effortlessly, right? She is pure. She is virginal. She is just pretty. And this the wickedness of the stepmother is her ambition, right? She's trying. She entrapped some king, we assume. She's like competitively beautiful. And somehow that's the greater sin. When we think about how male friendships are often shown on TV, movies and novels and things, fictional male friendships often have to overtly disavow gay interpretation with no homosexuality moments, like just sort of completely go, whoa, whoa, that's that's not where we're going, mate. Um, but I liked that in your novella, you had obviously Charm, who is homosexual, and Zin, who isn't. And they have this really wonderful, tender relationship without needing any of that kind of thing. I mean, was that in your mind when you wrote it? Was there any point you needed to say, you know what, I better make sure it's very clear that they're not interested in each other? Or do you think women are a bit more... We don't make those same assumptions about women as we do about men and male relationships. So I did think quite a bit about their sexuality and their relationship to each other. And one of the things that is very much in my mind is the way that queer female friendships can kind of blur the lines between what is a romantic and what is a strictly platonic relationship. And I think that those relationships like have the capacity to switch categories. Like it's interesting to me that you would say that like, I would I need to make it clear that they're absolutely not interested in each other, but I wanted it to be clear that they kind of had been on and off and Zinnia sort of by and like that there's this kind of a messiness to it and that close friendships, I think, regardless of the genders involved, or even the sexualities involved, can like have these moments of attraction, or these times where like, maybe they tried to date, and then it just totally didn't work out at all. Now they're friends. Like, like, I like that element of um, basically the potential for queerness. And I think that a lot of media through the 90s and 2000s was extremely just like pretended that queerness did not exist. And so you would never make that assumption about these characters. And I like that that it is now just sort of a possible thing and not a big deal, like this casual queerness of female friendships. And I think you're totally right too, that like male, male friendships tend to be much more policed and much more like uh, aware of what could look queer. And I think that has to do with the way that we allow women to be more tender and emotive and physically affectionate, um, just in general. So we're less suspicious of those things when they're turned towards other women. I completely agree. And it reminds me of that scene in the BBC's Merlin um, with Colin Morgan, where they have that that moment where Merlin's going in for a hug. And then Arthur is like, whoa, 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 what were you doing? And he's like, I was going in for a hug. And he's like, no, no. And this is kind of like very, I thought they made that massively over, like, because everyone's like, bromance, bromance. And like, that's the whole, the whole kind of 
underplot of that is like you you know you just totally get together already um get out of the picture Guinevere we're not interested um, but you know like that they had to do these moments or you know moments like that where they actually actively drew attention to it like oh no I don't think of you in that kind of way in a joking kind of jokey the manner BBC Sherlock had the same problem well they're constantly like the the constant joke is that people think they're a queer couple and they're constantly like, oh, I'm not gay, which is like mm, suspicious. Don't buy it. Um, but it's also interesting that like, A, the entire fandom that built around it was like, I'm pretty sure you are gay. And B, that the writers felt the need to just be constantly policing the possibility that these two men who live together and are each other's most important relationships could ever have anything romantic. Right. And I but and I think I think you're right to point out that women just do not get that same level of um extreme interest <laughs> about about their relationships. Um and I and I think that probably links back to kind of all sorts of stuff and um you know and and, and the patriarchy and toxic masculinity um and how as you said um men aren't supposed to express um, their emotions in the same way that women are allowed to do so. Well, talking about the Sherlock that Alex has just mentioned, I love that series. You mean with Benedict Cumberbatch and Morgan? F- yes. Um, yeah. Oh, I was uh, say Morgan uh, Freeman. Martin. Martin. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> oh, um, but I loved when they got Moriarty on, and in the third episode. And he starts off by pretending to be gay and then he turns up later on and kind of goes, oh, you, sh- you should have known it was me. I even gave you my number. And I just love this fact that he was just so fluid and so wonderful and so complex. And he just because he was so adaptable, he was so much more sinister and he was such the the bigger threat, the, the bigger character. He was just an always fantastic. Oh, he was an amazing villain. But it's also interesting to me that he's the only even slightly queer coded, even if he's pretending whatever you want to interpret that the only place they allow overt queer maleness in that show is in the villain, which is its own whole set of tropes about like the gay coded villainous figure. Who's like part of his sinisterness is this like code switching and like his femininity and all of this, like there's a lot of like subdued terrors, I think in that portrayal as much as I think he's an amazing actor. And I also love that show. I did obviously want to ask about trans characters and non-binary characters and how they fit in depictions of female friendships or sisterhood. Because again, it's that extra dimension. It's a slightly different relationship that you you do have with them. You know, how do you think that is is dealt with? And is this something you might like to do in the future, having dealt with different characters and different relationships in a spindle splintered? Do you think maybe the next step is this or are you going to leave it to other writers? Um, I mean, I've done uh, fairly tertiary trans characters in my writing before. um, And the reason I don't want to like probably have a main character who's trans because that's not my experience and I'm trying a little bit to stay better in my lane. But I will say that I am like completely uninterested in concepts of sisterhood or female empowerment that are exclusive, that are about who you are keeping out and about carefully drawing a line around who counts as a woman, who gets to be empowered, who gets to have these experiences or claim these experiences and identities. I think that's antithetical to the purposes of feminism and just fundamentally disappointing and boring. Um, So it's really, really, really important to me that we not, that like the concept of sisterhood, I find is an important one to me. It's a powerful one to me, 
But the least important and powerful part about it is the idea of somebody's specific anatomy and history with their gender. Like that's not what's important. What's important is, is forming alliances based on kind of sharing an experience as someone who is not favored by the current power structures, you know, who has faced, you know, different and specific forms of oppression and misogyny and um, homophobia. And like, all, like, I don't know, to me, the idea of sisterhood is about alliance, and it is not at all about exclusivity. I mean, personally, I would love to see more friendships and sisterhood involving characters like this, because we were talking earlier about stereotypes and how you fall back into it and you kind of go, oh, it's it's that all over again. I think having trans and non-binary characters would bring a wealth of new experiences and new stories and, and new interpretations that we've never seen before. I was just going to say one of the books I've read recently that I thought did a really good job. It's not a fairy tale retelling. It's a historical fantasy, but it's She Who Became the Sun. And there's kind of a classic both fairy tale and fantasy trope where a girl disguises herself as a man in order to participate in some way in the plot, you know, like she's a warrior or a wizard or whatever. And I just found that book to be such an intelligent and complicated look at maybe this is not about cis people, this trope, you know, maybe like, what if the person is non binary? What if they're gender queer? What if, um, this is not just a changing of costume or a disguise or a lie, but actually a really much more complicated statement about their identity. And I, and I just, I loved it. I adored that book as well. I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant um, integration of discussion of gender identity into a much larger historical, you know, ooh, very dramatic historical landscape. And I just thought, oh, Shelley was yeah, genius. So I'm really looking forward to the, the follow-up. I know, I'm dying. So just quickly to wrap up, because we seem to have discussed everything about friendships and sisterhood and, and had some fantastic recommendations in there. Thank you, Alex. But I wanted to ask, you've obviously done the Sleeping Beauty uh, story and you said you're working on Snow White next. But after that, is there any other fairy tale that you think you'd really like to get your teeth into and rewrite for a, a modern audience? See, my secret is that I just love retelling so, so, so much. I think there's some s sort of a special magic in working with material that is already familiar to your readers. Like you have a shared set of assumptions going in, and I think that lets you do a lot of fun things. But also the answer is I, my actual secret favorite fairy tale is Beauty and the Beast. I don't want to be told about how it's problematic. I know. I also went to grad school. But I love it so much. And so what I'm working on now is my next actual full length novel. And it's I'm describing it as like Kentucky Beauty and the Beast. And I'm having the time of my life. Well, that sounds utterly amazing. I can't wait to read that one. <laughs> well, I'm quite interested in the Snow White one first. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I will ever be tired of any Beauty and the Beast stories because I think it is a wonderful fairy tale that is just has endless potential for reinvention. Brilliant. You've given us some fantastic things to look forward to and some great recommendations. So thank you so much for joining us, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.